In many ways we are all sitting here because more than 2,500 years ago the Buddha understood something about his experience, about what was going on in his mind. And understood it in a way that he felt he could articulate it to others and perhaps have others also have that same understanding. And the Buddha's quest really was around the question of suffering, looking out at the world, realizing that we as human beings would like to not suffer. In fact, act in ways that we think contribute to our happiness and yet we find ourselves again and again caught in the same patterns, in the same cycles. And the Buddha asked, why? Why is this the case? What's going on? What's happening? And in his articulation of what he understood, he framed a path of practice for all of us to walk ourselves. There's one teaching in the Dhammapada that says something like, the Buddha just points the way. It's up to each person to walk the path for themselves. And so this articulation of the path, it's a path leading to freedom from suffering, freedom from struggle. And that path begins by basically understanding the nature of struggle, the nature of suffering. This is the perspective of right view. It kind of orients our whole path, right view. basically points the practice in a particular direction towards understanding and freeing ourselves from the ways that we get caught, the ways that our minds suffer. I think a big piece of the insight is around recognizing that There's stuff that happens in the world. That's out of control, that's out of our control. We're not going to be able to arrange a perfect world for ourselves. And so given that reality, what's the possibility for happiness? And looking into his own mind, the Buddha recognized a shift of perspective, 
understanding about how what we experience as suffering, what, what the experience of suffering here is in this mind and body is primarily about our relationship to the stuff in the world. And that when our relationship can be balanced, when our relationship can be one of ease, of no problem, there is no problem. And so the, the orientation is this perspective, this, this right view. And it begins our path, it begins the path of practice. And we have to have some sense of the shift of perspective, taking our attention from trying to fix stuff, fix the stuff that's happening, and looking at what is the contribution in our own mind to the way suffering is happening right now. It's not, this is not to say that we should not try to change some of the stuff that's happening in the world. It's not to say that we don't take action when we see injustice. And yet, but to recognize that our ease of mind, our peace of mind, our happiness, our happiness is a, is a funny word, but, but our ability to, because uh, what we usually think of as happiness is, oh, la-di-da, everything's nice, and that's not the happiness that the Buddha was pointing to, a deeper kind of happiness that can understand the conditions of the world and be at peace, even in the midst of injustice. But being at peace with injustice doesn't mean that we don't take action to do something about it. In fact, the heart that begins to open, the heart that understands how suffering works in this own mind and body, understands this is not just simply about this being, but it's about all beings. And it understands the, the injustices that go on. And we really begin to see that it's not just our own struggles the, the ways that our mind creates greed and aversion and delusion and uh, gets angry at people and judges people, that played out seven billion times over. The consequences of that are the world that we live in. And so the Buddha just didn't sit back and say, oh, things as they are, he decided to teach. He decided to take that action to help people to understand what's going on in their hearts and minds. That's one response to the suffering. Others may respond in other ways, but that response can come not from hatred, not from confusion, not from greed, but from compassion, wisdom, generosity, open-heartedness. 
for the choice to act in the world comes more and more as we practice from this balanced place. I think this is a misunderstanding about what balance is. The idea or hearing something, you know, the sense of, oh, balance, things as they are, no problem. Our idea about that is no problem means no action. (laughs) But it's not, it's not that way. And so the perspective that the Buddha offers of looking into our own minds, into how, what's happening in our own mind is contributing to the way that we are suffering. It's largely framed around suffering, framed around this this dukkha. A classic, two classic teachings that there is suffering, that the Four Noble Truths, one, one classic teaching. There is suffering. Suffering arises from conditions and causes in the mind, the contribution of the, of the conditions of the mind to our suffering, that it's possible for that to come to an end and that there is this path, the path that leads to the end of suffering, the Eightfold Path. And so the perspective around looking at suffering, understanding suffering, another form of this teaching, puts an action with each of those truths that Suffering should be understood. The cause of suffering, the craving, the clinging, the holding, the wanting things to be other than they are should be released, should be let go of. The freedom from suffering should be realized. We should directly, that direct experience of that freedom, of that letting go of suffering, and that we should cultivate the path. And so the the perspective of the Four Noble Truths, you know, it kind of sounds abstract perhaps, and yet it enters right into our practice. This is actually what I'd like to explore today, is how does this perspective of right view come moment to moment in our practice? It's not just some idea that we have somewhere in the background, the whole orientation of the way that we practice moment to moment includes this perspective. Another key classical teaching around right view has to do with what it is that leads to suffering and what it is that leads to happiness. And this is uh, basically the, the understanding that when we are acting when our minds have greed, aversion, or delusion in the mind, then the actions that result tend to perpetuate suffering. And we tend to experience suffering as a result when we are acting from that perspective of greed, aversion, and delusion. So this is a little more of a a kind of an unpacking of what the Buddha even meant by suffering. That when the the it's an suffering to the um, in this understanding of what the Buddha taught is not the uh, the fact that there's unpleasantness in the world, 
Because unpleasantness, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, is going to be there. That's the stuff of the world. It's gonna, there's going to be pleasant stuff, unpleasant stuff, neutral stuff. But our relationship to that, the relationship to the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, tends to be greed, aversion, and delusion. When things are pleasant, we want to hold on to them, we want to keep them. When things are unpleasant, we want to get rid of them, push them away. Often, when things are neutral, we're kind of disconnected, maybe not really aware of what's happening. Delusion enters in in more complex ways, and I think I'll talk about that at a later time. And so, beginning to understand that greed, aversion, and delusion are kind of the roots, the root states of mind of why we suffer. And that the flip side of that, non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, that when we act from that place, it tends to lead us towards freedom, towards a deeper happiness, towards equanimity, towards well-being. So these are two kind of very classical teachings around right view. And initially with right view, um, the Buddha put it at the head of the Eightfold Path, the very first thing on the Eightfold Path. And initially with right view, we need to take in some information. You know, we're, we're not going to have a perspective suddenly, even hearing it suddenly, it's not going to be like suddenly we, we say, oh, the Buddha was right, boom, and everything's wonderful. It's like we have to take this information in and massage it a little bit and reflect on it. Does it make sense to me? How does it make sense to me? Can I experience it in my practice? Can I experience it? And this is really where the Buddha pointed, he said, you know, you're not going to free yourself by just thinking or just listening. The freedom that happened came from directly looking into experience and understanding it from the inside. Having this perspective offered to us, greed, aversion, delusion will lead to your struggle suffering, stress, will lead to that in your life. Having that understanding helps us as we look at our experience to actually see that as true in our own experience. When we notice aversion arising in the present moment, we notice aversion arising in the present moment. When we are committed to looking at what's happening in the present moment, you know, really this practice that we're doing here, be aware in the present moment. Know what's happening in the present moment and cultivate a a continuity of that awareness. And so having that information that greed, aversion, delusion leads to suffering, one of the things we start to notice that we might not notice if it wasn't pointed out to us is that as we turn our attention to the experience of the present moment and aversion is arising, say, we begin to actually recognize that aversion is in the present moment, not a state of well-being. The reason why we might not notice this is because the story of aversion 
is, if you get rid of this thing, it will make you happy. Kind of likewise with the story of greed. When greed arises, now the experience of greed in the present moment, if we, if we touch in, if we open to, this is what wanting feels like in the present moment. We see it is not conducive to well-being in the present moment. It inherently feels like lack. It inherently feels off. And so the, the experience in the present moment of greed, of aversion, we can see, we can experience as not the way, not the way to well-being. But without that perspective that the Buddha offers, the, the view, the view of greed, the view of aversion, as opposed to a wise view, greed and aversion have their own views that they kind of offer to us, which we have actually bought into, hook, line, and sinker, for much of our lives. The perspective of greed is if you get this thing, you will be happy. And buying into that view, buying into the view of greed, we miss the fact that right now we're actually suffering with that experience of wanting itself. The, this is a form of delusion, actually. The, 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 view of, the view that greed holds, the view that aversion holds, that it convinces us of, that we are convinced of when we are operating from those perspectives, those views are delusion. And so inherently, greed, when we're buying into it, contains this delusion. We're believing, yes, if I get that thing, I'll be happy. Yes, if I get rid of that thing, I'll be, uh, I'll, I'll be happy. And so that perspective, that view of greed and aversion will mask because basically we're in our minds in that moment, believing the view, believing the perspective of greed. Oh yeah, if I get that thing, I'll be happy. Yeah, that'll be great when I get that thing. It's like we're living in a fantasy in that moment. And the fantasy has pleasant qualities to it. And so we're missing the inherent experience in the moment of the suffering of the greed living in this fantasy, which may or may not happen, but is not actually really happening. It's just an idea in the mind. And so this is one way that wise view comes into play moment to moment in our practice. We begin to look at what's actually happening, what's happening in our experience, noticing our relationship, noticing the perspective of greed or aversion, and being willing rather than buying into the view of greed and aversion to turn towards the experience. This is what it's like to feel greed right now. This is what it's like to feel aversion right now. And lo and behold, it does not feel good. Right there, we are getting true information 
about the consequences of greed and aversion. In the moment, consequences. That information, if we're open to it, it's like, it's like, you know, I've been talking about the practice being like being a naturalist. You know, you're, you're wandering through the naturalist, you know, you're wandering through the landscape of your experience. And you see, time and time again, when there's greed in the mind, oh, that feeling, it doesn't feel good. When there's aversion in the mind, there's that feeling. It's not well-being. In the moment, it's not well-being. The mind begins to learn that, and the mind, that the wisdom develops with that. The mind begins to let to know how to let go. Basically, I think what happens is that when, when the, the mind sees that experience, it unmasks the view of greed, that greed and aversion hold. It un- unmasks it as delusion. It, it, it shows the, uh, you know, the ludicrousness of believing in some possible future for happiness while giving over here and now the experience of well-being. And so the, the experience in the moment begins to instruct us of this. There's some other ways that in our practice, simple ways actually, that right view can come in to practice. And one way, maybe it sounds a little simple, but then some of the simplest things are the most powerful. The short version of this is objects are just objects experience that's happening in the present moment. Experience, whatever's happening, is just something happening in the present moment. Any experience can be used to cultivate mindfulness any, any experience. Possible. It's possible for any experience to be used to cultivate mindfulness. Now, as we've been exploring, there may be times when particular experiences, particular objects have so much power or momentum that at this moment, it's not possible to cultivate mindfulness with it because the power, the momentum of the the state of mind or, you know, whatever's going on, whatever that hindrance is, the power of that is so strong that it swamps. It's like we've got a tsunami of a hindrance and a little trickle of mindfulness. And so there are times when in a moment any object cannot be used to cultivate mindfulness, but there's nothing inherent about the object itself that it cannot be used to cultivate mindfulness. Actually, when 
it fe- when it feels like an object is is too powerful, there's something going on in our minds. Actually, another way to look at this this teaching or this exploration around objects are just objects. Is that objects don't have the power to disturb the mind. The sound of a bird, a body sensation, even a thought arising in the mind, even an emotion arising in the mind. The arisings themselves are just arisings. They're just phenomenon. What disturbs the mind is not liking the object or wanting to hold on to the object back to our friend's greed, aversion, and delusion. So the objects themselves can't disturb us. If there is disturbance happening, there's something perhaps unseen. Checking the relationship may help to unmask whatever that disturbance. What's the cause of that disturbance? The cause of the disturbance isn't the experience itself, it's the relationship. It lies in the relationship to the experience. There's actually in opening to flow of phenomenon that are going on, there's no better experience with which to cultivate mindfulness than the one that's happening right now. That's actually the only place we can cultivate mindfulness is with what's already happening right now. We often have an idea or a perspective that, oh, this object isn't the right object, or if I can find the right experience, then I'll be able to be mindful properly, or I need to change what's happening in my mind in order to meditate properly. That's an interesting one. On one retreat, I was... um, walking, I was going from walking meditation to sitting meditation. And as I walked towards my dorm, I noticed, because I was doing all my meditating in my room, uh, I noticed that there was this kind of adjustment the mind was trying to make. It wasn't anything I was consciously doing, but I was watching the mind try to put itself into a more meditative state. Like, okay, I'm going to sit now. It needs to be more meditate it for some reason. Fortunately, I saw what was going on there, and it was, uh, it's like, wow, that's interesting. You know, what's wrong with this state? This state of mind, this can be known. This takes some trust, because we have some views, some ideas that, you know, I think actually when I look back at it, what was going on there was it's like a subtle repression of thought I felt like, okay, what it means to meditate is to not have thoughts. And so just there was this little movement to shield myself from thoughts. And yet, just simply being aware of what is, because that movement actually was motivated out of a little bit of aversion. That was unseen. 
And so we don't need to change the state of our mind in order to meditate. Whatever is happening now, are you aware? Can you be aware of it? If you can be aware of it and know it, this is where right view comes in. Sayadaw Uteshaniya often says, simply being aware isn't enough. We need to basically have this perspective of right view that informs awareness. And so just simply, you know, so yes, this is what's happening, this is what's happening. It's the, the perspective of, of right view basically is one that understands what's happening in this moment is simply a phenomenon happening in this moment. Again, it just sounds so, it sounds like a tautology. It's like, well, of course, but our minds don't relate to experience in that way, usually. Our minds often will relate to experience as it, it's in this, this experience is arising in order to do something, or this experience is arising to get somewhere or to do something. And so in that, again, that's the perspective of whatever is arising. In that perspective, we are missing the fact that, well, what's actually going on is that this is just something that's arising right now. This is just a phenomenon that's arising in the present moment. So this is a major shift that's motivated by right view. Rather than being aware of experience in order to get anything, do anything, have anything, it is simply to understand it as this is what's happening in the mind right now. When we can have that perspective, that's all we need to do. Nothing else needs to happen. Often as um, people play with this practice, there's so much of a habit of, um, so much of a habit of uh, picking up something to do with tools. It's like, okay, now what I'm supposed to do is stay with the breath. I stay with the breath until it gets really subtle and then maybe I get some to do something else. Or so we've got this kind of like things that we do with the practice. And with this practice, it's really, you know, it's really bare bones. It's like aware, yep, aware, okay, yep, aware. A lot of people comment or say, what's next? I've been, I've been aware, I've been noticing that I'm aware, but, but what now? What, what's supposed to happen? Or what am I supposed to do with that? There is nothing to do with it. Actually, in that moment, the best thing to notice is, oh, what next mind is arising? The thought, what am I supposed to do, is arising. If you can simply be aware and recognize the right view perspective that this is what's happening now, this is phenomenon happening in the present moment, that's enough. That's all that needs to happen. Things will come in. Greed will come in. Ooh, what's supposed to happen? Oh, greed's arising. Okay, that's the next thing that happens. Aversion will arise. Boredom will arise. As we kind of hang out in this place of just noticing, oh, this is, this is just the phenomenon. All manner of relationships will enter in. And our practice is to recognize Oh, this is the relationship that's happening right now. Boredom. 
Boredom's happening. What's boredom? What's the experience of boredom? What's the experience of confusion? And, you know, often we end up talking a lot about the dukkha of things. But also, as we open to just being here in the present moment, we start to get tastes of a whole range of really beautiful mind states, equanimity being one of them, but also love, allowing open-heartedness, curiosity can arise. So these states, you know, as, as the mindfulness gets more continuous, sometimes we can also start to tune into the calm, the ease, the peace, the balance, the curiosity, the feeling of the open heart, the, the kind experience, the, the, the kind relationship to experience. And so not always when the mind, as the mindfulness gets stronger is it revealing the habitual patterns, but also sometimes it reveals these beautiful qualities of mind. And if we're not if we're not, um, we don't kind of open or step back and, and, and recognize, okay, what else is happening? You know, sometimes when we, when we explore this oh, over and over again, it's like, okay, yep, here, here it is. What's going on? What's going on? If the mind actually doesn't recognize, you know, the boredom might set in, but sometimes I think the mind isn't recognizing no problem is going on. You know, no problem's a pretty subtle experience sometimes. And so, you know, if we're not recognizing, yeah, the absence of suffering, the absence of problems, the mind might get bored. I mean, yay for boredom. I remember, it's like, the mind got so familiar with the ways that it suffered and saw just how habituated and attuned it was to react with aversion to just about everything. That was what this mind did, you know, it's like aversion, aversion, aversion. At this point, it's, it's kind of a blend of greed and aversion, but at the beginning, it was just almost entirely aversion and so much suffering, so unpleasant. And at some point when I got to places, it's like, oh, there's no aversion happening right now. It's like, oh, what a relief. And so that experience, we can also open to that and recognize, oh, no problem is happening right now. Can we appreciate no problem? Can we appreciate the fact that, th- that our mind is not like yanking us around all over the place right now and just taking things in? If we can begin to attune to and appreciate the subtler states of calm. Calm can be pretty subtle. Peace can be pretty subtle. Until we start to get a taste for them. One teacher, Michelle McDonald, said that, yeah, calm is like an acquired taste. You know, we have to learn what it is. We have to actually recognize it. Our mind is a, a, a habituated to recognize way more obvious stuff. And so as that reactivity begins to settle, as we're more able to be continuously mindful, the reactivity falls away and it's like, 
oh, no problem is happening. If we don't recognize that, we might well get bored. So this, uh, you know, just noticing this is what's happening in the moment. This is something happening in the moment. Begins to cultivate this continuity and cultivates this um, non-reactivity, which we can begin to appreciate. We begin to appreciate the value of the practice by seeing how it leads to non-reactivity. Another piece uh, around right view that I think is helpful to um, highlight for ourselves is that what's happening in the present moment? So this first piece was, you know, just what's happening is just happening right now. That's one uh, expression of an orientation that helps us to meet the present moment. What's happening is just happening right now. uh, An additional piece of that is that what is happening right now, what's arising right now, is not random. It is a natural result of causes and conditions. It's a very lawful unfolding of what's happened in the past. Now the, the causes and conditions, I like to sometimes unpack that a little bit. Conditions, conditions is a wide range of things. This, this includes, you know, experiences from our history, you know, the way we were raised, the family we were raised in, the interactions we had on the playground, the ways that our, uh, our peers dealt with us, um, um, the cultural milieu that we grew up in, um, the... Uh, so all of that stuff, kind of the conditions, what we often talk about when we talk about conditioning, all of that contributes to what's happening now. And so the, uh, the, the whole relationship that, you know, we, and we can see this in the present moment sometimes when we find ourselves reacting to something. We may find ourselves reacting to something or someone and know kind of intuitively that it's a bigger reaction than this particular circumstance actually calls for and see how it's connected to something from our history. And so this is part of the conditioning, is recognizing that our history, how we were raised, as well as our own choices and actions, that contributes to our history. So it's not only what other people did and uh, how we were raised, but the choices that we made in those conditions, those also filter in to how we are right now. So that's part of the conditions. And then, um, you know, there's other parts of the conditions, like our genetic predisposition, you know. Um, just, you know, something simple, like for some reason my genetic body does not respond well to bell peppers. You know, it's not a good thing if this body gets bell peppers. You know, that's a genetic condition. It impacts my experience when bell peppers are consumed. Now, 
that itself, I mean, there's unpleasant experience, physical experience in the body when bell peppers are consumed. That's not necessarily dukkha. That's just the conditions of the mind and body. And so that's conditions, right? It's conditions, the genetic, the way our, our bodies are put together. That's a part of the conditioning. And then um, there's also things like the weather, you know, just the conditions of the world, kind of regardless of people, but just like, you know, heat today and how that impacts you. So this is all the conditions. And then causes, I, I, I make the distinction between causes and conditions. Causes to me is more what's coming into play right now. What's our relationship to this right now? This also impacts what's happening in this moment. What's arising in this moment is related not only to what has happened in the past, but also to how we are relating to it right now. And this is a big aha moment for us in the meditation. When we, when we recognize or see a kind of a little subtle shift of perspective that can happen. Oh, there's something happening that I don't like a pain in the body or maybe I ate too much food or something so there's the the bloating or you know some unpleasant experience conditions led to that unpleasant experience and the relationship to that may be one of aversion or self-recrimination why did I eat so much at lunch or you know so that could be coming into play right now creating the whole experience being one of dukkha but as we watch and we are committed to recognizing, oh, right, okay, so there's these unpleasant sensations in the body, and there's this relationship. There's a relationship of not liking, of, of self-recrimination. As we watch that, what's happening now, sometimes there can be a little shift where that self-judgment or not liking, maybe just for even a few moments, it lets go, it releases. And then we see how different the experience is in this moment. The sensations of the body aren't any different, but there's suddenly, again, it's no problem. Suddenly it's just, oh, pressure and aching, but not, not a struggle with it. It's simply experience arising in the present moment. And so we see how not only does the present moment, is the present moment impacted by the conditions from the past, but it's impacted by how we are with it right now. So, as we see the fact that conditions come into play, that things are not random, at least in my experience, beginning to recognize or see um, of course this is arising right now. It's like we begin to understand that what's happening right now is a result of patterns. It's not personal. It's Saito Utejaniya sometimes uses the uh, 
phrase, this is nature. This is nature. And to me this expresses in a very succinct way that um, what's arising right now couldn't be any other way. It is just the most natural thing for this thing, for this thing to be arising. When I really got this about self-hatred, exploring in the mind self-hatred over and over again, willing to watch it, willing to look at it, at some point the mind really understood just through this willingness to watch, be present for it in the moment, it understood, oh, the self-hatred, it's arising, it's just arising because of history. Of course, of course this is arising. That uh, recognition is kind of like a psychological insight. In fact, I understood some of the history of it in a way understood how it, how it was connected to all of those things, I, you know, all those kinds of things I talked about. And as I understood that, it's like, oh, of course, of course. It's like that began to take the personal sting out of the fact that self-hatred was arising. It's like, self-hatred is arising. It took me back to that first insight, that first recognition. It's just an object in the present moment rather than like somehow believing something impo- it's, Im- it's something important, that it's a problem, that it needs to be fixed or changed. It's just self-hatred arising in the present moment. Just having that insight of the conditioned nature of self-hatred was hugely freeing. But it didn't stop the pattern from arising. What it did do was allowed the mind to not take it so personally so that I could keep watching it without being, uh, you know, when self-hatred is a hard one to work with because it you know, feels like such annihilation. And so, you know, the, the, when self-hatred would, would arise, there would be, you know, just this whole sense of self around it. I'm no good. I'm a failure. I'm always going to be a failure. And it's, it's, that was all extra. Kind of the believing. It was like the believing of the self-hatred. And so what the, uh, that insight into the conditioned nature of self-hatred did was it, it, it kind of helped me to recognize this is just arising now because of conditions from the past. And the relationship now to it can be very different. And so that shift the understanding of the conditioned nature of experience is a huge support for our being able to witness even very, very difficult states of mind. And so we can bring in some of this wisdom, this kind of like bringing in borrowing wise view or um, you know, having certain key phrases in effect to help us orient towards right view when we're struggling. For me, this is nature was one of those very powerful, still is actually one of those very powerful tools 
when there's a lot of struggle happening, just my mind reminding myself, oh, this is nature. It like helps me to reorient to, right, this is just conditions. This is just something arising in the present moment. That's all that's happening right now. And then that creates the conditions to be able to witness it from a balanced mind. As we can witness even very reactive states from a balanced mind, we start to learn even deeper, we have even deeper insights around them. Recognizing that, you know, really that just, it's just a phenomenon has no inherent reality other than what the mind gives it. That kind of insight has a very powerful cutting quality to it. Really can cut the that pattern so strongly. And so, um, you know, exploring ways in which and I've offered several different perspectives of right view here. Objects are just objects. Thoughts are just thoughts. Experience. It's just something happening right now. This is nature. What's happening is a result of causes and conditions. Everything's a process. This is dukkha. That was a good one for me too. Just a reminder. This is, this is suffering. This is the Buddha, you know, oriented his whole teaching around dukkha. And, you know, Understanding dukkha is the first step. It's the first noble truth. And so if the mind can recognize, oh, right, ah, self-hatred's arising, this is dukkha. Again, there can be a kind of a, a stepping back and recognizing this is the path. This is what the Buddha asked us to do, to understand this process of dukkha. So we can bring in you know, actually, this is a way of using thought in our meditation, a skillful use of thought in our meditation. Bring in some of these perspectives to support helping us to remember essentially why we're here and what we're doing. As we um, practice, you know, as as understanding develops as we are willing to meet experience just as this is just something that's happening in the present moment. Experiences arising in the present moment. We're willing to recognize it's conditioned. It's not random. It's product of causes and conditions. As we, as we can remind ourselves of that, the uh, continuity of the awareness allows the mind to open to its own understandings in the moment. And so at that point, it's kind of like, it's kind of like we drop. We drop into an understanding in the moment and then there's something that we know for ourselves. We may not be able to articulate it in words at first. We may not be able to express it and yet, sometimes, you know, some of these perspectives of right view, it, it's like usually the, the wisdom that 
arises as we have an understanding is some flavor of understanding dukkha, some flavor of understanding impermanence, some flavor of understanding conditionality. So the, the, uh, as, we, as we begin to recognize our own insights, we, can't, we, we won't be living from those insights all the time. This is another, another uh, helpful piece to recognize that um, we do in finding our way to a continuity of awareness. We will have some of these shifts of perspective. We will open to our own insights. And insights are impermanent. They're a product of the conditions of that moment, of the state of mind in that moment, able to deeply see in that moment. And in that moment, there is a wisdom that is known and understood very clearly. But then delusion comes back. The perspective of aversion comes back and convinces us, yes, if I get rid of this thing, that's what will make me happy. And so it's not that we you know, we lose those insights, but we can't exactly live from the place of those insights forevermore. And yet, having had them ourselves, I talked about, you know, bringing in the perspective of, of wise view, and initially we kind of have to borrow that perspective. Maybe we have to borrow it from, you know, a Dharma talk or we might have to borrow it from somebody saying, yeah, this really helped me. Why don't you try that? And that's what I did with Sayadaw's, this is nature. It's like, yeah, I'll try that. And as I explored it, there began to be some, some clear recognitions of understanding in my own experience, which then turned that insight into my own. And so I no longer needed to borrow it from Sayadaw even though I wasn't living it in the moment, it was like I could borrow it from myself, borrow that perspective from myself. Oh, this is nature. And that be, has become one of my own wisdom phrases. This is nature. Sometimes it can be helpful in our... Um, uh, now, as we do kind of open into our own insights, if there is an articulation of it, which there sometimes is, not always, but if there is an articulation in the mind of the understanding that happens, that can be a very powerful tool for you to use. You know, one, one, one for me, um, um, Sayadaw talked about, over and over again, he talked about the meditating mind is simple. It's such a simple thing. It's not complicated. And I looked into my mind and I saw lots of complication. And, uh, you know, as I just kept holding that idea, the meditating mind is simple. The meditating mind is simple. What I began to recognize for myself was when there's complication arising, that's not the meditating mind that's complicated. It's, it's, the, it's the object. And so the, the wisdom that expressed itself to me in that moment was, oh, if it's complicated, it's an object. If it's complicated, it's just something to know. That's all. It doesn't mean that I have to change the mind to somehow be simple 
from being complicated. And so from that teaching that he offered, the meditative mind is simple, not complicated. My own expression of the wisdom was, if it's complicated, it's an object. I used that over and over again. So the, 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 the framing of this, I mean, I'm not, I mean, that may be useful to you in, in of itself, that little teaching. But partly what I'm pointing to is that as we have our own insights, sometimes there's our own language that comes with it. And using, you can use, you know, we might find little pithy phrases that help the mind to orient towards wise view from our own insights, even though we're not living them in the moment. And when they come from our own perspective, it's like they're closer at hand somehow. It's like it's, it's connected to a visceral experience of that freedom that we felt. And so it's almost like because it's connected to that experience, it's, it, it, it can sometimes, not always, I mean, and you can't use this thinking, oh, oh, I should just say if it's complicated, it's an object and that'll be okay. If we're using it to try to get somewhere, it's probably not going to be very effective. But, but if we can just like remind ourselves, oh, right, it's complicated. Oh, this is just an object. You know, so whatever it is, whatever your wisdom is, it's okay to bring in wisdom thoughts. Use them sparingly. I don't want you thinking all day long, <laughs> but it can be very helpful as a tool in our practice, especially when we're struggling to remind ourselves of the wisdom that we know. And when we're absent wisdom from a particular, for a particular situation, reminding ourselves, right, this is dukkha. This is impermanent. This is not me. This is nature. Bringing that in can be a really helpful way to cultivate and point the mind in the direction of right view reminding ourselves essentially why we're doing this. And so over time, what seems to me to happen is the perspective of wise view, oh, an object is just an object, this is just happening in the present moment, this is conditioned, experience is just conditioned. It's not something we even have to think about. It just becomes the way our practice is oriented. And that's when the, the right view is kind of like more embedded in the very practice. And so it becomes more natural in a way and we don't so much have to try to bring it in. It just is the way that we explore our experience more naturally. I think that's enough. Let's just sit for a moment. <laughs> 